But I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 2. Today we're going to read verses 1, 2, and 3. And we're beginning an Advent series that I've entitled The Glory of God and the Birth of Christ. Being the Sunday after Thanksgiving, I think we know what we've entered into. Uh, you, you see it on the walls here, the, the beautiful wreaths. You'll see the lights in people's yards. Christmas trees already shining through windows, decorations in people's homes. And even if uh, you're a very principled person by myself, a principled person like myself who has very strong opinions about not putting up decorations until after Thanksgiving, there's no holding it back now. Um, I think the, the Christmas elves decorated my house last night and our tree is up as of last night. So the Christmas season is here. If you know your liturgical calendar, uh, you'll also know that technically this is not the Christmas season, but rather the season of Advent. And Advent simply means coming. Uh, We are preparing for the coming, the arrival, uh, the appearing of Christ. And usually during Advent... We'll take a break from our normal sermon series and uh, do something focused on this season. And this is, believe it or not, this is Molly and my fifth Advent here at Trinity. And I was looking back through what I'd preached in the past, thinking, what am I going to do for Advent? We talked about the prophecies of the birth of Christ. That was in 2018. In 2019, we did the prologue to John's gospel, those first 18 verses, the word uh, became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, Chapter, I'm I'm sorry, 2020 was probably my weirdest year when we just looked at the first chapter of Luke and everything involving Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and John the Baptist. Last year, we looked at the different names ascribed to Christ. So what do you do this year? I mean, how many different ways can you look at one event? Well, my plan is to just go straight to the source. Luke 2, verses 1 through 20. This is one of the best known passages in the Bible, known as the the Christmas story. It's the, the, the birth narrative of Jesus Christ. It's the narrative that most likely we've heard read every Christmas... We've been alive. This is the passage, or at least part of the passage, that Linus stands up on stage and reads in Charlie Brown Christmas. Linus actually does verses 8 through 20. We're going to go all the way back to verse 1. But that's my plan. To have this passage, to divide it up somehow into four Sundays and one Christmas Eve service, And to ask the question, how do we see the glory of God in the birth of Christ? You know, the birth of any child 
is an incredible event. Uh, You might not believe this or you might think I'm just being funny, but I did have a quiet moment to myself before Louvi arrived. And I remember being alone in the hospital with my thoughts and being struck with the idea that things are about to change. And then standing at the nursery window and watching the nurses clean her up and look her over. And that was a weighty moment. And the same with with Mabel. I remember uh, the moment, I can't remember which set of grandparents, but but they they brought Luvi into the room to meet Mabel for the first time. And that was another weighty moment. How much more glorious, how much more weighty is the birth of Christ? With, with my two girls, you have a soul being created and coming into the world, a soul that will never die. But Christ, if you know your creeds, you'll know that he was not created. He was not made. Rather, he was begotten. He was God manifest in the flesh. We call this event the incarnation. So we're going to look at this narrative in Luke 2 surrounding this birth. And we're going to slowly make our way through these 20 verses this Advent season and hopefully see the glory of God in the birth of Christ. Well, today we're looking at the first three verses and we're going to focus on the times in which Christ was born. We're going to look at the setting of this historical account. You know, Molly and I were talking through this last night and she noted, she said, you know, the story can become so familiar. And we've heard it so many times that we may forget that what we're talking about is not just some story you're taught in Sunday school, but rather a historical event that took place in time and history. And that's why Luke begins the way that he does. And and I will remind you that everything depends on the historicity of this birth. You know, fairy tales don't take our sins away. Fairy tales don't give us peace with God. Fairy tales don't resurrect bodies from the grave. And if this was just some fairy tale, I'd tell you, you'd be better off at home or in a deer stand or working on your Christmas shopping list. But this isn't just some sweet story that you learned in Sunday school. It is an event that happened in history and changed history forever. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, the times and circumstances surrounding the birth of Christ. Let's pray and then read our text. Father God, we remember that your word is true. You breathe it out. Your Holy Spirit carried along men as they recorded it down. And so this morning, as we uh, read these historical notes surrounding the birth of your son, Father, may we be reminded of your work in history. 
And would you speak to us this morning through your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. You know, it's, it's a fun thing going back. It's just one of, this is one of the fun things of the internet. Going back and looking at the big news stories that happened the year in which you were born. Now, I did this, and some of you are going to roll your eyes, and some of you are going to think I'm trying to make you feel old. If that happens, I'm sorry. It's not my intent. I did this. I was curious. What were some of the events and circumstances that surrounded my birth? Well, I went back, and uh, I can tell you I was born the same year as the Challenger explosion. I've heard that that was one of those you remembered exactly where you were type of events. And kind of like my generation has with 9-11. But I was born that same year. I I was also, uh, well, less than a month before I was born, uh, there was another explosion. This one in Eastern Europe at the Chernobyl nuclear reactor. Makes me... Grateful to God that I was born in Octibahaw County Hospital and not Eastern Europe. Well, on a lighter note, this one was not an explosion, but just two days prior to my birth, the film Top Gun premiered. It's fun going back and seeing those different things that accompanied your birth. What was going on when Christ was born? Well, Caesar Augustus was on the throne as the first emperor of Rome. His birth name was Gaius Octavius. He was the nephew and adopted son of Julius Caesar. And Gaius Octavius would claw his way to power by defeating the famous couple Antony and Cleopatra. And he would reign as Caesar from 31 B.C. to A.D. 14. The name Augustus was given to him by the Roman Senate. Augustus means holy or revered, venerated. And at this time, I mean, as you'd imagine, the name Augustus was pretty much reserved for Roman gods. And this is the first time it's given to an emperor. And Caesar embraced this. So did the people. He, he came to view himself as a, as a god. And this was the beginnings of the Roman imperial cult where the emperor was viewed and worshipped as a god. You know, in church history, this is what got the Christians in trouble. Because they refused to worship Caesar as god. All they, all they would have had to do was 
go into one of the Roman temples, burn a pinch of incense, and say, Caesar is Lord. And they could have avoided all the trouble they experienced from the government. There's a big difference between praying for the emperor and praying to the emperor. And they could not do that. And they couldn't do it because they knew what the Lord said of himself. He said, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. They couldn't burn the incense. They couldn't say Caesar is Lord. And so they were persecuted. But this is who was reigning when Christ was born. This self-proclaimed God who viewed himself as the savior and defender of Rome, a man named Caesar Augustus. Well, what was going on? Luke tells us that at the time Jesus was born, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Caesar commands a registration of all the world. Now, what was this registration? If you've got a King James in front of you, you'll see the word taxed there. That's a good word to use. Um, if, if you look at this word in the Greek, the only other place it's used in the New Testament, I think, is in Hebrews 12, and it's translated enrolled. So think of those words, registered, enrolled, taxed. Right? All those words uh, give us an accurate idea of what's going on here. Something that's probably all too familiar to you. The emperor's subjects are registering themselves, being enrolled, in order that they might be taxed. You know, in the same way that when you start a new job, you fill out paperwork from the IRS so that you can be taxed. Your name and your income are registered so that the government will know just how much they can charge you. That's what's going on here. People are traveling back to their ancestral homes so that they can be registered for taxation purposes. This is what we see each person to their own town. Well, who did this apply to? Luke says it applied to all the world. Now, that's not what we think of as all the world. Luke is simply referring to the Roman Empire, the known world, those regions that were under the control of Rome. So Spain, Western Europe, Southern Europe, North Africa, the Near East, Greece, this whole Mediterranean world. And then Luke gives an additional detail reminding us that we are dealing with history, that this is the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. This is the man who's responsible to govern and administrate Caesar's decrees in this particular corner of the empire. So this is the world just prior to the birth of Christ. The first Roman emperor 
who considered himself a god, ordered that every person under his authority be counted and registered so that they might be taxed, no doubt so that these taxes could be used for the beautification of Rome and the expansion of the empire. So how do we see the glory of God in the circumstances and world events surrounding the birth of Christ? First, since Caesar Augustus is so much in focus at the beginning of this Christmas story, I think it might be beneficial for us to remember how God relates to human kings and emperors. And the first thing to say is that God is the supreme Lord. I want to quote our confession of faith. This comes from, I think, paragraph 2 of chapter 23. God, the supreme Lord and King of all the world, has ordained civil magistrates to be under him over the people for his own glory and the public good. And to this end, he has armed them with the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of those who are good and for the punishment of evildoers. All right, we're going to break that down. First thing we see is that God is the supreme Lord and King of all the world. Not Caesar Augustus. Not any world ruler alive today. God is king. Now, how how do we even begin to conceptualize what it means to be supreme Lord and king of all? Well, I'll briefly paint you a picture. And again, it comes from the confession. This is what it looks like to be supreme Lord of all. God has all life, Glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself. He is all sufficient, not needing any of the creatures which he made. He is the only fountain of all being. By him, to him, and through him are all things. He has dominion over all things and can do with them whatever he pleases. In his sight, all things are open and known. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and nothing to him is contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men and every other creature, whatever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. There is no one like this God. He is the supreme Lord and King of all the world. And as such, he has ordained civil magistrates to rule over us. He ordained Caesar Augustus to be the emperor of Rome at the time of the incarnation. And he has ordained civil magistrates to rule over us. Do not forget, the men and women who currently rule over us did not rise to that position by chance or by the sheer 
force of their own ambition. They have been appointed by God. And therefore, we are to pray for them. We are to be subject to them and not resist them. Not because we agree with their policy, but because we trust that the supreme Lord and King of all has placed them where he wanted them at this particular time in history. We just think Caesar Augustus was a serial adulterer. He was so prideful, he took on a title ordinarily reserved for Roman gods. And yet God Almighty placed him on the throne and would use him to accomplish his purposes. Third thing we see in this confession, God is the king and supreme Lord of all. He has ordained the civil magistrates, and then he tells us, we see in the confession, the purview of government. That's a big debate, isn't it? What is the responsibility of government? How expanded should it be? How limited should it be? Well, here is the reformed biblical answer of the purview of government. God has armed our rulers with the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of those who do good and the punishment of evildoers. You see this in 1 Peter 2. It says, whether emperor or governor, they are sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. That is your reformed biblical understanding of the primary task and responsibility of government. And you just wish those in Washington, D.C. would focus their time and energy on punishing those who do evil and praising and defending those who do good. This is how God relates to our rulers. He is the supreme Lord of all. He has appointed the civil magistrates to be under him and over us, and they are to defend and encourage those who do good and punish those who do evil. Next thing to point out, as we think about these times surrounding the birth of Christ. Everything that Caesar Augustus has done and will do is only serving to further the plan of God. For example, the world is primed and ready at this time for the arrival of the Messiah. Have you heard the term the Pax Romana? You all heard that? Pax Romana means the peace of Rome. It speaks of a time of relative peace. There were no major wars during this time. Augustus had unified the empire. He'd expanded the empire. He'd built roads everywhere. You know, just how you and I, we can go get in our cars, pull out on North Harper Road, and we can safely travel wherever we want in the United States, as long as we've got gas money to get there. It was the same with Rome. You have roads built connecting all these regions and cities in the empire. And they were patrolled and protected by soldiers so that travelers could go from one place to another without fearing robbery and murder on the road. 
You know, maybe as Americans, we take Paul's freedom of travel for granted. You know, as we've been going through Acts, we've seen Paul leave Jerusalem and go to Antioch and then sail to Cyprus and then sail to Asia Minor and then over to Greece and through all those cities and then back to Asia Minor and then back to Greece and then back to Jerusalem. And then he had the hope of going to Rome. You know, there are lots of tyrannical countries where such freedom of movement is not allowed. But Caesar Augustus has helped create this climate of political and social stability where a missionary like the Apostle Paul could easily go from one place to another without anything preventing him. You know, if you know your history... You'll know how big of a deal it was that the printing press was invented. For the first time in history, letters and books didn't have to be hand copied. They could be mass produced. And you could argue that without the printing press, you don't have the Protestant Reformation. You could also argue that without the Pax Romana and this network of highways, you don't have the spread of the church. And yet the printing press... And the Pax Romana was not historical coincidence. It wasn't just the the aligning of the stars at just the right moment. The supreme Lord of all orchestrated these events and prepared the way for the coming of his son and the proclamation of the gospel. God is not surprised by what we see in Luke 2, 1 through 3. He's not surprised by this, res- uh, by this uh, registration. He's not reacting to this registration. He- he's not going to figure out how to make Augustus' decree fit his plan. Augustus' decree is his plan. Now, Caesar Augustus may have only been thinking about raising taxes to further the glory of his empire but we're able to look back and see that he was simply an instrument in the hand of God. And his human decrees would ensure that a pregnant woman named Mary was in Bethlehem at precisely the right moment. And his human decrees would help lay the foundation of another kingdom, one that would outlast Rome And be eternal. One commentator remarked. Augustus imagines. That he is busied in advancing the glory of his name. And the luster of his reign. And yet he orders. By means of others more powerful and absolute than his. Become subservient to the accomplishment of prophecies. Of which he is altogether ignorant. To the birth of a king whom he will never know. And to the establishment of a monarchy which will subject his and all others to itself. The first three verses of this Christmas story should remind you and me that we should never be greatly distressed or overly anxious by the conduct of our earthly rulers. 
Instead, with the eye of faith, we see a divine hand overruling all that they do to the praise and glory of God. And so with the psalmist, we can say, my times are in your hand. We need not be anxious. We need not try to govern and control the world. We need not think we know better than God and we know what the world needs now. You know, after COVID, all these news articles started coming out about why Americans were currently terrified of bringing a child into the world. And there were different things cited. Oh, well, the infant formula shortage. Or we've got active shooters in schools. Or the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. The threat of climate change. One person was quoted to say, a lot of people are afraid of what it means to be alive at this time and what it means to bring children into the world. Church, hear me. Such an attitude is anti-Christian. Can you imagine if Mary and Joseph had thought that way? How are we going to survive bringing a child into the world when we have this pagan serial adulterer who calls himself a god sitting on the throne? I mean, just think about this congregation alone. We had a little girl born in early October. We had another little girl born a week and a half ago. And Lord willing, we're going to have a baby boy shortly after Christmas. And to those parents and to the rest of you, I say your times are in his hand. Put your trust in him. No matter the current events, no matter how they might tempt you to distress, no matter the human ruler who is in power over us, you can say, my times are in your hand. Let's pray. Father God, would you give us the eyes of faith, eyes of faith to see that our rulers, our civil magistrates who are over us cannot act outside of your will. They cannot do anything that you do not allow. And Father, you have a purpose. And you will work all things for the good of your people. Father, would we see through eyes of faith that we are held in your hand. Would we see that Our names are engraven on your hand as we read from Isaiah 49 earlier this morning. What a promise we have in you. What a shelter and strong defender. 
Lord, you have been faithful to so many before us. And your word will never fail. Grow our trust in you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.